What do people want from the church? So what have you heard? Maybe there was a time in your life when you had all kinds of ideas about church and what you would want from a church and what a church should give. Along those lines comes the question of what kind of people or what kind of preaching will draw a crowd? Will the unsaved, what kind of preaching will the unsaved be willing to listen to? So you think about what do people want, and one of the things they really have an opinion on is what's going to take place right now in our service. What, you know, what about the preaching? They have opinions about all kinds of things, but what kind of preaching do they want? What kind of preaching are they willing to listen to? And it's because people don't want to be preached at. Have you ever said that or heard someone say that? I don't want to be preached at. Maybe you said that outside of church. <laughs> Maybe you said that in other contexts. But especially, even in church, I don't want to be preached at. People don't want to be told that they are a sinner. And people don't want anything too deep. People specifically and definitely don't want long sermons. People want something encouraging, helpful, something practical for the challenges of the week ahead, and definitely short. <laughs> people don't want a prophet proclaiming judgment. People want a life coach or a therapist dispensing advice, possible solutions that should be considered, and if found to be helpful, followed. So the question for us today is, should the church go to the world to find out what they want and then give it to them? We talked a little bit about this last week. Do we, do we go out to those who do not know Christ, to those who have not trusted in Christ, or those, at least those who do not go to church and ask them, what would you like? And then should we then give it to them so that they would come? That's kind of the idea behind this. Should we let the wisdom of the world set the direction of the church, even to the point of determining its message and the proclamation of it? Well, we go to God's word for the answers, not our own opinions. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, it is your son, Jesus Christ, who we must see. We must see him in the words of the Bible and we must understand, and so we need you to open our eyes and ears, soften our hearts to receive. If there's anyone who doesn't know Christ as Savior, may they see Christ in all of his glory, in all of his goodness, in his mercy and love and grace. May they see his power, may they see his wisdom, may they turn to him today. That is our cry, that is our prayer. And may we who know him turn more to him than we have before. May we see how we are to respond and how we are to act in this world that you might be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in verse 17. So 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, and I'll read through verse 25. So just follow along in your Bible as I read. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's revelation. This is God speaking to us through his word. Listen to him today. And the theme of this passage is worldly wisdom is foolish, but the foolishness of the cross is absolute wisdom and power. The wisdom of the world is foolish, but the foolishness of the cross is absolute wisdom and power. And so where we've come to in our text so far uh, in this first part of the letter to the church at Corinth is that the church in Corinth is divided into groups who are arguing, quarreling over who is the most eloquent teacher of wisdom in the church. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, also known as Peter, or Christ. Who's the greatest philosopher, the greatest proclaimer of Greek philosophy in the church? Who has the best grasp on that philosophy? Who can explain the gospel in the most philosophical manner? Who can bring the gospel and worldly philosophy together the best? And whoever that is, that's the one we should follow. That's the one we should listen to the most because that person will have the greatest success in building a church and planting a church, and that success will be determined by how many people they baptized. Sound familiar? Yeah. We, you think, do you think there's anything new under the sun? In 2,000 years, churches have been thinking about things like this and wrestling and arguing and debating these kinds of things. But that's what we saw last week, starting in verse 10 through verse 17. We saw the divisions, and the divisions are based upon the fact of who has the most eloquent wisdom. So in verse 17, we get the best idea of what the divisions were wrapped around. So when you're following Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Christ, you're following who you think demonstrates the most eloquent wisdom, and that was connected to also how many people they had baptized. So with that thought in mind, we get to the heart of Paul's argument. So Paul just brought us the introduction in 1 through 10. Now he's going to respond to their divisions. He's going to respond to their quarreling, moving through this uh, text into weeks ahead here, into verse, even into chapter 4. Now, what we saw last week is that Paul says that this kind of quarreling is a threat to the gospel. And it's a threat to the primary mission of preaching the gospel. Now, the question is this, how is focusing on Greek philosophical wisdom a threat to the gospel? These divisions are about philosophical wisdom. Paul says they're a threat to the gospel. How? Well, we're going to start today with the, with, the, with the meat of the argument, and that argument is going to continue into chapter 4. If you want to know how these ideas are a threat, we'll begin by talking about today, that today and then finish it up weeks ahead. So we start in verse 17, which is a transitionary uh, statement. It, it, it finalizes the introduction and then moves into the heart of the argument. And so here in verse 17, we see the danger of worldly wisdom. We see the danger of worldly wisdom. There's a difference between worldly wisdom and other kinds of wisdom. So I'm not just going to say the danger of wisdom, because wisdom is not the problem. It's what kind of wisdom is it? And so Paul points out here in 17 the danger of worldly wisdom, and immediately he tells us the danger. He says it empties the cross of its power. So he preached the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
This eloquent wisdom is dangerous. Why? It empties the cross of its power. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lest it become void, emptied. The, the phrase of its power is implied in the original language, but not given. It makes the cross of Christ emptied. And so emptied of what? Well, he's going to explain that in here in a little bit. So what Matthew Henry says here is that Paul did not preach the gospel in the flourish of oratory or the accuracies of philosophical language, lest the cross of Christ should be of no effect, lest the success should be ascribed to the force of art and not of truth, not to the plain doctrine of a crucified Jesus, but to the powerful oratory of those who spread it, and hereby the honor of the cross be diminished or eclipsed. Are we going to focus on the flourish of oratory, on the accuracies of philosophical language? If we do, then people coming to Christ or people uh, making professions of faith is going to be more attributed to the force of the art, the ability of the preacher, his rhetorical style. How great is your preacher? Well, how many people came and made decisions? How many people walked the aisle? How many salvations did we have today? How many baptisms? And so the focus becomes more on homiletics, the art of preaching, than on the message preached. And as soon as a pastor or any proclaimer of the gospel gets more focused on exactly how we preach and the, the how-tos of that, we miss the gospel and the heart of the gospel, and therefore, we believe that the power is found not in the cross, but in the, the ability to proclaim it. Do you see the danger? And therefore, when people come to Christ, we say, well, that preacher, he's so great. He's such a great preacher. Well, what about the message? He's a great preacher. The reason so many people came to Christ under Jonathan Edward or under George Whitfield or any great revivalist of the past is because of how they preached. We should imitate their style and their oratory because it's not the message that mattered. It's the style. See the problem? That's what he's talking about. That's the danger of worldly wisdom. So if you want to take away the power of the cross, then proclaim it in words of eloquent wisdom. In Paul's day, this is words of Greek philosophy. If you want to take away the power, then focus on Greek philosophy. If you want to empty the cross of its power, then use worldly wisdom to guide your preaching of the gospel. If you want to build a church, a large church of people who are impressed with your rhetorical skills and with your grasp of philosophical wisdom, then you will fill your building with people who are, for the most part, not saved. If the cross is emptied of its power, then what do we make with all the professions of faith and all the people that are there and all the people that are getting baptized? If the cross is void or emptied of its power, then who are in these churches? People who are not truly converted, if they're converted on the ability of the rhetorical skill of the preacher and not on the power of the truth of the cross. Have you seen churches like that? Have you been a part of a church like that? Do you see that the idea of the, of the preacher versus the message preached, the gospel preached? So if you want that, then focus on that. If you don't want that, if you want to have truly powerful preaching that truly saves souls, then you must not preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. What's the lesson for us? Do not go to the world for direction on how to proclaim the gospel. Listen to the critiques of the world. I'm not saying don't listen to people who criticize any proclamation of the gospel. 
Listen to the critiques, that's fine. But they must be thoroughly run through the filter of God's word and an internal critique for consistency. So you must take any critique of your proclamation, of my proclamation, of any proclamation of the gospel, and run it through a couple filters. First filter is always the filter of God's word. Am I proclaiming the gospel based on what God's word tells me to and how to do it? Secondly, I run their criticism through an internal critique to see if their, their critique is actually valid. What does that mean? Well, this is how this works. The world will attack Christian Christians with some of the vilest words, call us the most wicked names, and then turn around and say that we are unloving when we point out the sinfulness of other people. So this is how this works. You get online and you say that homosexuality is a sin, transgenderism will never work, and you say these things and you lay out the truth and you will be viciously attacked by people who will call you the worst names and all these other things, and then they will say in their attack, you are unloving. You blankety blank, blank, blank. So when you run that critique through the gospel, you say, am I speaking the truth in love? I might not be. I need to run it through critique. And then, is their criticism valid based upon their internal critique? When they call me every name in the book and then call me unloving, do I need to listen to their criticism? Obviously, they do not have a good consistency with what it means to be loving. And so I don't have to give their criticism much weight. Notice, they will then attack the Bible and your interpretation of it and your application of it as personal opinion. They will say, that's just your opinion. That's just one book out of a thousand books. That's just one religion out of a million religions. How, you know, they will just attack the, the foundation for your position. And then they will turn around and stand on the ground of personal opinion for their every truth claim. That's just personal opinion. And you just have to ask this one question. What's your foundation for truth? Well, I know... Well, I've always believed, well, me and my friends, we all believe, wait a second, you have a problem with my foundation of the word of God, and you're calling that personal opinion, when all you have to respond to my so-called personal opinion is what? Personal opinion. All right, this becomes uh, most clear, and some of you have seen this on Facebook, so sometimes if you take a clear stand on Facebook, guaranteed, whether there are people who are truly your friends, or people who are somehow connected or just find your page, they will attack you just like this. The first thing they will do is call you names and say you're unloving. They will then say that that's just your opinion and you shouldn't force it on others, which is simply what? Their opinion that they're trying to force on you. So you need to give their criticism the weight it deserves. Sometimes we as Christians just buy the critique that by stating the simple truths of the gospel, we're being unloving. We buy the critique, and therefore we silence the gospel and try to change the gospel to make it more palatable to people who don't have a, a true foundation for truth. And we do that not only on Facebook, but we do that in personal conversations, and we do that in the preaching of the gospel, and that's a problem. We cannot let the world determine what we say or how we say it. Do you, you with me? That's the danger of emptying the cross of its power. Now, secondly, do not allow the feelings, thoughts, and complaints of unbelievers to set the agenda for how you think and how you act. We set our agenda. The agenda that, we, that is set for us is not set by the opinions or feelings or, of other people. It's set by the Word of God. 
So we need to be thoroughly immersed in the scripture to know what to say and also how to say it. If not, we will be tempted to back off the message, to back off the clear proclamation of the message, to do all kinds of things that will empty the cross of its power. That's the danger of worldly wisdom. And too many Christians are spending more time in trying to figure out what the world wants than what God says for us to do. Are you with me? That wasn't very convincing. (laughs) Well, we'll move on. 18 to 25. What do we see next? Secondly, starting in verse 18, we see the effectiveness of the folly of the cross. The effectiveness of the folly of the cross. What you have to understand in this entire section is the play on words. And the first play on words is the contrast in verse 17 between words of eloquent wisdom and the word of the cross, verse 18. Words of eloquent wisdom are contrasted with the word of the cross. Now, the word of the cross is what we preach, verse 21. What we preach is the word of the cross. And what we preach is Christ crucified, verse 23. Therefore, and and also then summarized in just one word in verse 24, Christ. Therefore, Christ crucified is set in opposition to the many and numerous words of Greek philosophy. The word of the cross is Christ crucified. That's what we preach. Christ crucified over here. Words of eloquent wisdom over here. Let's compare and contrast in this section. Now, also, what he does, and you've seen it and heard it as I read through this, he keeps going back and forth between the word folly and the word wisdom or wise. Foolishness and wisdom. Back and forth. And sometimes it gets a little confusing. Because he's using those terms and he's playing with those, the, the language to make his point. So notice the effectiveness of the folly of the cross in comparison with the danger of worldly wisdom. Are you with me? So it, does, it sounds backwards, but stay, stay with me and we'll see how this plays out in the text. First of all, the effectiveness of the folly of the cross is this. The folly of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. The folly of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. That's what he says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. Simple. The word of the cross is what powerfully saves. Do you get it? Preaching Christ crucified is what saves souls. Romans 1.16 backs this up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The power of God is the gospel of God proclaimed to lost people. You want to see people saved? What must you do? You must proclaim Christ crucified. That's it. Now, is that it? You just walk around saying, Christ crucified, and people like fall down and get saved. No, that's the basis of it. Now we can talk more about how that is fleshed out. But notice it's the power to those who are being saved at the same time, yet it is the folly to those who are perishing. It is folly to those who are perishing. Well, you say, I preached Christ crucified, and people look at me like I'm crazy. They say, that doesn't make any sense. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yep. It is folly to those who are perishing. So when people respond like that to the gospel message, guess what? You're probably saying it exactly correct. You're probably doing exactly the right thing if they say, that's so stupid. 
Because to those who are perishing, that's what it is. It is foolishness. So again, the, com- the comparison and the contrast of wisdom and folly is throughout this. But notice, it is supposed wisdom and true wisdom. It's what the world thinks is wisdom and what is actually wisdom. What is supposed to be wisdom, according to the world, is foolishness. And what is seen by the world as foolishness is actually true wisdom. They have everything backwards, so when they get it all backwards, don't be surprised. That's exactly what you should expect. Now notice, before we move on, that the Bible gives us only two groups. Us who are being saved and those who are perishing. So when Paul writes a letter to the church and it's read in church, what is he assuming about those who are in church? In the church. He's assuming, some, not, he's not guaranteeing it, that those in the church are those of us, us who are being saved. And those outside the church would be those who are perishing. So there's only two groups. There's not us who are being saved, those who are perishing, and some neutral group who, who, go, who might go either way or might end up in a third place. There's only two groups. Which group are you in? That's the question. Are you in the group of those who are being saved, us who are being saved, or those who are perishing? One of the most important questions you will ever ask or ever answer is that question. In what group are you? Now, the reason why when you preach the gospel, this is what happens, people think it's foolish, it's because this is the fulfillment of prophecy. The word of the cross and the response to it is the fulfillment of prophecy. So what Paul does in verse 19 is he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 14. He quotes from the Old Testament and says, because it is written for, the reason why the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the perishing is because that's what God said would happen. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. This response was prophesied beforehand, and now we see the fulfillment of it. God promised to demonstrate the foolishness of worldly wisdom. God promised to demonstrate the foolishness of worldly wisdom. So notice verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? He says, look around. Where is the philosopher? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater now? What ultimate answers, what ultimate solutions have you received from those people? He says the preaching of the cross appears like foolishness. That's prophecy being fulfilled. And yet, when you look around at all of the so-called wisdom of the world, and you start paying attention to it, what are all the answers that they have provided? Where are all the solutions that last? Why, if that is true, are we a culture built on that kind of philosophy with the most people ever recorded in human history on drugs? And I'm not talking about illegal drugs. I'm talking about legal drugs. I'm talking about the drugs that the doctors prescribe because you are depressed, because you are suicidal, because you are anxious. I think over 50% of every woman, every, every woman, not every child, every, every woman is on drugs, prescribed drugs from a, from a physician to deal with anxiety and, and depression or whatever it might be. The suicide rate, the despair, if philosophy worked, then why aren't we better? Why aren't we happier? Why isn't our society more joyful? That's the question. 
You see, the cross appears to be foolishness. Well, look at all the wisdom from these people. That's really working out for you. You know, isn't that what Dr. Phil would ask? How's that working for you? So here's the way you've been living. The simple question is, how's that working out for you? You think the cross is stupid. Got it. Understandable. God said it would be this way. Well, how about all the wise people you've been following for five years, 10 years, 20 years? How's that working out for you? That's his question. It's rhetorical. So the answer to the rhetorical question of where is all the wisdom of the world, where's all those guys now to give you solutions, the, the answer is none. But why, why doesn't their wisdom work? Because at the end of verse 20, he gives the answer. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's your rhetorical answer. And the answer is yes. He's made foolish the wisdom. The wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. That's why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because God has said their wisdom is foolishness. Now, here's the question for you. Have you tried the world's ways? Have you tried the drugs, the alcohol, the sex, the wealth, the fun? Have you, have you tried it? I mean, have you really given yourself over to the wisdom of the world that says satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and blessing? It's found in all of these ways, the wisdom of the world, the vast wisdom. Have you tried it? And if so, how's it working out for you? Talking to a young man, broken, hurting, in despair, suicidal, tried it. Tried it. I've tried this. I've tried that. I've tried this. I've tried that. I said, Well, what about Christ crucified? Have you tried that? Well, that's stupid. Not the exact words that he said. Has heard the gospel, rejected the gospel. No, that's stupid. I said, Well, have you tried meth yet? How about heroin? Have you tried that? Well, I haven't tried those yet. Well, you better get on it. Because I'm sure there's an answer there. You've tried marijuana, you've tried cocaine, you've tried alcohol, you've tried all these other, you've tried all this stuff. It hasn't worked. You're miserable, you're broken. You haven't tried it all yet. You better get on the road to trying those other things. And you say, well, that's bad advice. No, the sooner the better. Get on it. Because that's the only answer. If you say no to Christ and you're broken here because you tried all these other things, then what else is there to try? You better try it. Because I'm sure the answer is found in one of those, right? And they say, no, 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 I would never do that. I would never go down that path. That's stupid to keep using my word. But guess what? In the brokenness of where they are, in the, in the weakness and sadness and the despair of where they are, they're either going to stay in that place and, or turn to Christ, or they're going to stay in that place and get sick of that and then do what? They will try the meth. They will try the heroin. They will get worse. Because they cannot stay there. That's the wisdom of the world. And it keeps offering. No, that wasn't, well, you, you try this. Well, that didn't work. Well, try this. And they always have another thing to try. Why do you think so many people are turning to all kinds of deviant sexual behavior? Why are they giving in to all the idea of, of transition and changing who they are and cutting off body parts? Because they think that in doing so, they will find something of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. They don't feel good with where they are. There has to be an answer. And the world will keep offering another answer. And you'll cut this off and cut that off, and it won't work. And so what's next? 
they will always offer something else. And all of it mitigates against what? Christ crucified. But why would I try that? And they will keep going down the hole. They will keep spiraling out, and they will keep trying because they, they simply, here's the simple truth. When you reject Christ, you have to find something somewhere to satisfy. And all of the world's ways will do nothing but make you more miserable and more empty and more broken. Guaranteed. Is it because I said it? It's because God said it. And so what do you do to that young man? You just preach the gospel. You point out the foolishness of all those ways. You run the, how do you say that, ridiculo absurdum? You point out the, how absurd, and you reduce that, that worldview to its absurdity, and they see the absurdity of it, but if they won't turn to Christ, it doesn't matter how dumb it looks, sooner or later, they will do it. They will do it. It's either Christ or misery trying to satisfy with other things. That's the way it is. Now, what do we do then? Well, we understand that the preaching of the cross is the means of salvation to those who believe. Letter C, it is the means of salvation to those who believe. So what is seen as folly to the world is what saves. This gospel message that sounds foolish to men is actually the true wisdom that saves. So notice what God does. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. All of their wisdom turns out to be absolutely foolish. And that's because in verse 21, in God's wisdom, you're not going to find God through wisdom. But you're going to find God through the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. You will not philosophize. That's not the right word. Wait a second. I've got it written here. I looked it up. It is a real word. You will not philosophize your way to God. No one is able to reason themselves to God. In God's wisdom, he decided that you cannot know God through worldly wisdom. Again, notice the word worldly. The means of salvation is the gospel because God decided in his infinite wisdom that you can't wisdom yourself to God. You cannot philosophize your way to God. So no one can do this. You cannot rationalize your way to God. So no philosopher in human history ever started with a blank slate or with the foundation of philosophers that came before and rationalized and reasoned their way to the Almighty God. They never have. Sooner or later, in all of their infinite worldly wisdom, they go off the path. They will be tracking. So you'll read a philosopher, you'll be like, oh, as a Christian, that makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of wisdom there. And they'll be tracking and tracking. And then all of a sudden, there'll be a left turn in the philosopher. Every philosopher takes a left or right or some sort of weird, crazy, wacky turn. Why? Because this is how God ordained it. You cannot take philosophy and work your way and rationalize your way logically to Almighty God. That's how God ordained it. He is God. He created it. This is his way. It won't work. He tells us you don't have to wonder about it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe you, Pastor. Well, you just argue with him, not me. This is God's wisdom. In wisdom, he said, worldly wisdom will never lead you to God. He just ordained it that way. And so trying to go against the way that God created the world will just lead you down the same broken path. But let me give you more reasons than just this is what God did. 
<laughs> so God said so is not always a satisfying answer. So I'll try to give you more information, but sometimes it won't satisfy either, but I'll do my best. A further explanation is this. Because man is a sinner from birth, his understanding is darkened. So he won't see clearly because he's a sinner, and he's a sinner from birth. He's born a sinner. And also because he's a sinner, his will is rebellious. So he doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. And his heart loves himself and therefore hates any and all authority, any and all help, any and all direction from outside of himself. So what the philosopher wants to do is think he's a good person, who's always pretty much been a good person, who's, who's, who started off as a good person, and he has the intellect to make his way to God or to the truth if, there, if, if there's not a God. And also, he doesn't want anybody telling him what he should believe and explaining it to him. He doesn't want any help. He wants to do it on his own and his own power and his own strength and his own wisdom. And therefore, he loves himself. Therefore, anything that he comes across in all of his great wisdom is going to be really good. Have you ever run across a sinner who's got one of the most terrible arguments for whatever they believe, but to them, it's like gold? It like makes so much sense. Like, I've got a killer argument for that. And they say it, you're like, that's like the dumbest argument. And you just, you, you destroy it simply. And you, but to them, it's so good. Like your kids, your kids, they start to get to be teenagers and they start to rationalize and reason. So instead of just rebelling against you, like, no, I'm not going to do that. They're like, well, if that's true, then what about this? And it's like, and then you just destroy their argument. They're like, I thought it was, they thought they had you caught. They thought they could, they could defeat mom and dad with their great wisdom as a 12-year-old or 13 or whatever. But that's because they love themselves and they think too highly of themselves. They think their own arguments are so wise. Well, do you think the philosopher is any different? He's just an older version of that young teenager. So because they are darkened in their understanding, rebellious against God, and lovers of themselves, they will never find the answers in the end. Because of who they are, they will always go off track because of those reasons. And an additional explanation is found in the next section that we'll talk about next week. If God was known through worldly wisdom, then those who know God would have a reason for pride, and that would lead them to worship themselves as the creature rather than God as the creator. If you could just make your way to God on your own and understand all of the things that God has to show, all the truth, all the wisdom on your own, then what does that make you? I mean, if you could comprehend God, <laughs> wouldn't you be God? Now, there's just some deep truth for you there, right there. Now, Notice also, letter D, it is folly to the Greeks because they seek wisdom. So the word of the cross is folly to the Greeks because they seek wisdom. Now, verse 22 starts with the Jews. We'll come back to the Jews in a minute because the main heart of Paul's argument is to Greeks. He doesn't build the argument that way necessarily, at least as it's translated in, in English, but this is the idea. So it is folly to the Greeks. The, the, the word of the cross, the preaching of Christ crucified, is folly to the Greeks because they seek wisdom. They seek wisdom. So they seek wisdom, but what do we preach? Verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. So to the Greeks, those who are seeking wisdom, a crucified Messiah, a crucified Savior is folly because they value wisdom. And for them, God is ultimate reason. 
God is ultimate logic, ultimate rationale. If you could just distill all of truth down into ultimate reason and rationale, what would that be? That would be God. You'd find God in the end of the base of wisdom. And therefore, if they say, no, God hung on a cross and died for you, they say, what? That makes absolutely no sense to wisdom. A crucified Savior, God is a man hung on a cross dying. That makes absolutely no sense because they see God as ultimate reason and ultimate rationale. That's Greek philosophy. And also, who determines what is reasonable? Who determines what is logical? Who determines what is rational? I do. Man does. The Greek does. The Greek says, that is illogical. On what basis? My logic. <laughs> I, I, can just, I can just rationalize and reason all these things out, and I can just be the, the determiner of all these things. Man himself, notice again, because the sinner loves himself and thinks highly of himself, he thinks his ability to rationalize is the end-all, be-all. So that's why a crucified Savior is foolish. Anyone who believes a man hanging naked on a cross does nothing to advance the human understanding of reason or wisdom. Anyone who believes that is a fool. That's what the Greeks thought. So Paul is continuing to contrast wisdom and folly, and he contrasts it as an argument for the Gentiles, specifically the Greeks. He goes back and forth in his, his word there because he's, they're synonymous. This is a pointed argument for a very specific audience. It is not an argument for the Jews. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 1 here is a Gentile argument. It's not a Jewish argument. Because the problem with wisdom was not a Jewish problem, it was a Gentile problem, it was a Greek problem. Now, what's the Jewish problem? Well, the Jews demand signs. So the crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews because they demand signs. So it's folly. The crucified Savior is folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. How does that work? A crucified Messiah, a crucified Savior, is a stumbling block to people who value power, not wisdom. Now, not that the Jews don't care about wisdom, but what they valued most in the Messiah was his power. The Jews, therefore, were repeatedly demanding a sign of Jesus, demanding that Jesus perform miracles that would validate him as the Messiah. They never came to Jesus and said, demonstrate your ability to philosophize like the Greeks. Now, they would test him according to what? They would test him according to the law and his ability to understand and apply the scripture. They were testing him on that. But when they asked for something to, to validate his messiahship, they would say, show us a sign. And do you recognize as you read through the Gospels and the Bible reading challenge, how many times he would do something miraculous and the next thing that he would say is, show us a sign. It's like, what? I just did something powerful and miraculous. And they would say, that's not enough. We want more. We want more. So we need another sign, a different kind of sign. The reason they would do that is because they wanted the wrong thing from the Messiah. They wanted a powerful ruler to rescue them from Roman oppression. They wanted a powerful savior to feed and clothe them. And so what Jesus says to them when they wanted those signs for that reason, what was the sign he would give them? The sign of Jonah. And what's the sign of Jonah? Now, they might not have understood it, but they did later. What's the sign of Jonah? It's the resurrection. It's the empty tomb. 
If you want a sign to how powerful I am, I am going to come out of the tomb alive. I'm going to die and be buried and then rise again. Any more power that you need? But the people who demanded a sign from Jesus that way, what happened when that happened? That sign didn't work. They paid off the Roman guards to lie that he'd been stolen because it wasn't the sign that they were after. Everything was just more. So notice, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Now notice what the Gentiles or the Greeks and the Jews have in common. There's power in this place. You guys recognize that? (laughs) It's a sign. (laughs) Who said that? Someone said that. You get taking credit for that one? Good job. It's a sign. You said it? Good. It's a sign. (laughs) Here's what the Greeks and the Jews share in common. They believe that a crucified Savior, Christ crucified, invalidates the claims of Christianity. They believe that Christ on a cross is the demonstration that their religion is invalid. The cross offends them. It angers them. It upsets them. It's the demonstration of the folly. We say that Christ crucified is the greatest demonstration of all that God has done. And they say, no, that's the highest point of invalidation. Now, I don't believe in our current culture that a crucified Savior is the greatest invalidation of our point in the world's eyes anymore. That's because we're not Greek philosophers. Most people you talk to, they have no idea what a Greek philosopher is or what they believe, and they don't hold to it. They've gone way past the Greeks. And so their greatest problem with Christianity has nothing to do with the crucified Savior. In fact, many of them love a crucified Savior. They love the idea that someone would die for them. In fact, they love themselves so much they think everyone should die for them. They think every opinion, everything you say, should validate, should affirm, should support them. Everyone should die to themselves and live for them. So crucified Savior is not a problem for them. In fact, they love a crucified Savior. They love a martyr for their own cause. They love a Jesus who would love them enough and give his life to make them happy. Now notice, the problem of the gospel for us is not the same problem that Paul had with the church at Corinth. It's a different problem. But notice, what we can learn is the critiques of the world to the message of the gospel, which is Christ crucified and what that means, is is, is where we have to focus. So when you talk about Christ crucified, demonstrates of how wicked and sinful we are and that every person is a sinner, born a sinner, in need of a Savior who had to shed his blood to die for them. Oh, now we've got a problem. Because I'm a good person who's living my best life as best I can according to my own ways and whims, and we need a Jesus that affirms that who's willing to give his life to support that. But when we say that lifestyle, those actions are sinful and wicked, he had to die to pay the penalty for that and pay the price for that. Oh, now we reject your gospel, not because we reject Christ crucified, but we reject the reason he was crucified. So we are tempted not to work on Greek philosophy. We're not tempted like the Corinthians are tempted, but we are tempted to follow the worldly wisdom of saying everybody's okay, no one's a sinner, everything's the same, we should just affirm and love people, and that's what Jesus said, and that's what Jesus would do, and that's what Christians or religious people who say they're Christians are tempted to do. Because... The call to repent of your sin and trust in a Savior who died on the cross and paid the penalty of your sin, that is foolishness to the world. And that invalidates all of their religion. And it makes your religion stupid. 
in their eyes. Now, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to change your gospel? Are you going to change your message? Are you going to not say it at all? Are you going to stay quiet? Come to church and, and sing the song and say amen, but don't put anything on Facebook because people will come after you. Don't say anything to your family or friends that would upset them. This is our, this is our struggle. I'm I'm figuring out what to cut out here. Let's go on. Letter E, Christ is the power and wisdom of God to those who are called. Christ is the power and wisdom of God to those who are called. Gordon Fee, one of the commentators I'm reading, said that this is one of the most important and powerful passages that Paul ever wrote. And I don't think I would have said that until studying through it this week. This, this is so important, and it's right here. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But, there's a couple of buts here. We have a but at the beginning of 23 and then 24. The Jews demand something. The Greeks demand something. But we don't give them what they demand. We preach Christ crucified. And the good news is that even though that's a stumbling block and folly to those who are perishing, there are those who are called. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. There are people that God has called to salvation, and when we preach Christ crucified, when we preach the true gospel, what will happen? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's, 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 it's all people, no one's left out here. Every ethnicity is included in those two groups, Jews and Greeks, because to the Jews, everyone was a Greek. Everyone was a Gentile. And so here's what happens. When you preach Christ crucified, you preach the true gospel to people who are of any group. If they are called by God, then the message will be Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. You'll preach to people who've tried it, who failed, who were miserable, and when they hear the true gospel message, those who are called, in the moment that God is calling them to salvation, notice that as well, in that moment, they will hear the message that once to them was absolute stupidity, but this time it will make all the sense in the world. It seemed to invalidate Christianity, but now it shows the power of Christianity. Because in that moment, God is calling them to salvation, and they will be saved. It's God at work. It's God's power. It's God's wisdom. And that's our hope. Our hope is not in our eloquent wisdom, our ability to give the message, our ability to convince people, our worldly wisdom. The power is in the gospel proclaimed accurately and truly trusting God to save souls. And he will. He will. It's the power and wisdom of God. It saves those whom he has called. So if you've been called by God to salvation... If you're one of those chosen by God, predestined for salvation, then the preaching of Christ will be understood in all of its power and wisdom. So instead of seeing the cross as weakness, you will see the cross as a display of God's power. Instead of seeing the cross as folly, you will see the cross as a display of God's wisdom. And the unbeliever says, that would never happen. How can that be? And that's verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Because God's foolishness is wiser than all of man's wisdom. And secondly, God's weakness is stronger than all of man's power. So Gordon Fee says it this way. In the cross, God outsmarted his human creatures and thereby nullified their wisdom. 
In the same cross, God also overpowered his enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby divested them of their strength. It's in the cross. And therefore, God has ordained it this way. Therefore, none of the glory in anyone coming to Christ goes to man, either the preacher or the one who converts. How many souls have you led to Christ? How many people have you... Is it you? Was it your ability? Was it your power? And we are enamored by all the means and all the ways trying to manufacture God to work by manufacturing the means instead of trusting the gospel message and his power. And we are tempted to do that in so many ways across the board. In our churches, in our, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our call for revival and reformation. Do you want revival in the land? Do you want God to sweep across the United States of America and transform this nation? How would we bring that about? What methods would we do if we wanted to see revival? Well, I've heard that based upon this revival, this is what they were doing. So we should do what they were doing when that revival fell. What about this revival? What about that revival? We would go to try to manu- we try to go find the things that led to what we want, and we would try to do the same thing because we think that the power to bring revival is found in what was done by man and not what was done by God. And that's missing the point. And so we preach Christ crucified because in the simple proclamation of the gospel, of giving the whole truth, of giving the whole idea, those whom he has called will be saved. They might not be saved in this giving of the gospel. They might not be saved for decades. But at one point in time, if they are called by God before they die, they will hear the gospel and it will make sense. It will be not just make sense. It will be wisdom. It will be power. And they'll trust and they'll believe and they'll be transformed. And it will be because of the message, not because of the way you did it. So when you preach the gospel to someone who totally rejects it, you don't go away saying, how can I do that better? Now, that might be true. That might be true. But you go away saying, that's the fulfillment of the promise. But by God's grace, there will be people that you will witness to, friends and family. And so you proclaim the truth by faith, that they will hear it. And in a sense, out of the blue... Their view, their thoughts, it will be totally different this time. And they will repent and trust in Jesus Christ, and they will be saved. And you'll be like, I, would, I didn't even do anything different. No. And the reason for that is because salvation belongs to whom? Does it belong to you? Does it belong to me? Does it belong to our ways? The salvation of sinners belongs to God and God alone. Therefore, he receives all the glory. No pride for any of us. And so why do we pray the way we pray? Because we cry out to God to do what only he can do, and we believe his promise. And we pray, and we trust, and we act in faith to go out onto the streets of Owasso, to go downtown to the farmer's market, to go to other things, and we proclaim the gospel, we hand out tracts, we talk to our neighbors, we talk to our friends, we talk to our family members, and when they talk about their brokenness, we don't point them to other things. Young man, I'm talking about He joined N.A., wants to deal with the battle he has with substances. He joined N.A., and we would say, great, find help that you need. Unfortunately, I'm not that supportive. I said, you recognize that that's not really going to work, ultimately. 
I said, it'll help you for a while. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying stop. I'm saying that in the end, it has no transformational power, and you will grit your teeth, and you will work the rest of your life just to hold on to sobriety one more day. But Christ promises to transform you, to change your heart of addiction, to change your desires, and to make you into a person, and that's the delivery you need. If you just cling to NA and all of its man-centered wisdom of how to do a little bit better today and hang on, it will in the end leave you empty, and almost certainly every person in there, unless they turn to Christ, because there are people who are Christians in NA, without Christ, though, you will always stumble again because you cannot make it on your own. There was my moment. I preached the gospel. I trust in Christ. I give the message, no matter whether they want to hear it or not, whether it sounds good to them or not, because this is what saves and transforms. And we trust it, even when it doesn't bring about the results we want in that moment. It's our only hope. If you are not a believer here today, and if the message of the gospel is ringing true, if you see Christ dying on the cross for your sins as the demonstration of God's great power, of God's mercy and love and grace to save wicked sinners, to do what you cannot do by paying your price, taking your penalty. And if you trust in him, washing away your sins and making you clean and making you whole, you'll see God's wisdom in a way you've never seen it before. If that's happening today, if that's happening right now, trust in Christ and be saved. God is calling you to those who he has called. It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. And we trust it. We obey it. So if you're not a believer, see the wisdom of God's folly in Christ crucified. See the power of God's weakness in Christ crucified. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and do it right now. Right now. And if you're a Christian, recognize that it is the preaching of the cross alone that has the power to set sinners free. And when I say preaching, I don't mean just preaching from a pulpit in a church building. I mean this, proclamation. So proclaim Christ crucified anywhere and everywhere, and then I would tag onto that, trust God for the results. Trust God for the results. And we need to pray, and we need to obey in faith, believing that God will work when it's his time. Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 50 years? I don't know. But I trust God to do his work according to his ways. And we can act in faith. Be bold. Father, help us to see, to understand. Again, our hearts are broken for those that we know who are lost, those we know, those who we've witnessed to, who have rejected Christ. And we so want to see them saved. We want to see them set free. We want to see them born again. We want to see them forgiven. We want to see their lives transformed. But we can't do it for them. And we can't change our message to make it more palatable or understandable or easier. We just must act in faith. And, and more than that, Lord, we need to get out into our community. Take a bold stand in the face of persecution, in the face of ridicule, in the face of people who, who, who will do all sorts of vile things to us or say all kinds of vile things. Lord, we need to be bold and loving and kind and care enough about them and love them enough to give them the truth and trust you to work. This is our prayer. We cry out to you to do what only you can do in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.